Welcome to the Radical Reverend Show on this International Women's Day, if you're listening on the radio at uh, CIUT 89.5 FM. And by way, a shout out to the radio station, the last alternative radio station left in the GTA. Yay, CIUT. Um, and uh, this is a special show, of course, and I'm featuring two of my favorite women in politics, uh, both federal and provincial. So we're starting with Nikki Ashton, then we're going to talk to Merritt Stiles. Merritt, obviously, the education critic, so we're going to talk to Merritt about all things school and how unsafe they are, truly. Um, We'll talk about that in the second half of the show. But right now, let's go federal. uh, And let's talk, first of all, Nikki, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Sherry. I am honored to be speaking to one of my favorite uh, uh, politicians for life, you know, you know, elected and then uh, and then uh, an advocate forever. And and I really want to wish all of your uh, your listeners a happy International Women's Day. Thank you for that. Um, and let's let's get going on that. I mean, my goodness, uh, still Canada is not great in the eyes of the world for the number of women that get elected. We're still fighting on that front as feminists. Um, you know, what would you say just to young women who are thinking about getting into the political fray, young women on the left who, you know, they're, they're women of principle, they want to they wanna get involved, but they see, you know, all the hassle that we go through and other women go through just to get elected, and then it doesn't stop there. What would you say to them? Why keep going? Well, first and, and foremost, I would say we need you. Right. I would say that absolutely, as you pointed out, Canada still is nowhere near uh, parity when it comes to uh, uh, our representation of women in politics. Uh, so, uh, you know, so we, we definitely need more uh, and we need more progressive women. I, I'm, I'm one of the people that says, you know, it's not not all women. <laughs> Not our women is what we need, right? And and uh, you know, I was first elected in in uh, uh, in in the two thousand eight election where Harper was in government, and goodness knows there were a number of women that were leading the charge against choice, right? That were leading against the the charge against pay equity, that were leading the charge against a national inquiry into missing and murdered Indigenous women. So what we actually need is progressive women, and I would say. So many progressive women are are the most, frankly, bold and daring within our movements because we see in so many ways the ways in which uh, the systems of power uh, not hold not just us down as women, uh, but but our communities down, right? And and uh, and I, I I would say we we need your voices more than ever as we see inequality increase, as we see the threat of the climate catastrophe. Uh, become more and more serious as we see the rise of the alt-right, which much of it is rooted in in misogyny, right? So we need your voices. But what I would also say is we need our our political movements. I I include, you know, parties like the NDP. I include uh, labor organizations to work and create space and seed space to strong progressive women, uh, because we, I also find, have fallen in that in that um, that trap of uh, the percentages of women, right? And and uh, you know the 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 use of of, of the right feminist language, uh, uh, but. Uh, as I've experienced myself, I know Sherry, you have, um, you know, there's all too often an effort to silence our voices, particularly those of us who are constructively critical of our own movements and, and talking about ways that we can do better and be 
more feminist or be actually feminist, right? And so, you know, it, it's not enough to say, go get them. It's, uh, we need, uh, you know, leaders and, and, and political organizations to take a hard look at the way in which women, uh, and, and particularly, um, you know, bold women and, and women from the margins are not are not being heard. I mean, I will also say there's there's some real structural challenges that we need to get uh, very serious about as well, right? And and Sherry, you know well, I've, we've talked about this many times the the lack of of universal childcare, right? And uh, you know, it's 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 not enough to just throw out the slogans of you know, run for us. We'll we'll uh, we'll support you. We need that structural change. Uh, you know, we need parties like the NDP to champion uh, the need for universal child care, particularly coming out of the COVID crisis, where it's been identified an ap- as an absolute essential service. Right. So so we need to do better, I would say, on a number of fronts so that we can make space and support uh, progressive women who are already making change in their communities and who we need to make change uh, at the national level. Should also say that, uh, of course, on this show, um, as you know, trans women are women too. So um, just, uh, you know, uh, in case there are any TERFs out there, um, just throwing that in. Speaking here to um, to Nikki Ashton, MP, and, and Nikki, one of the things, uh, as you were speaking um, about missing and murdered Indigenous women, and, and uh, you've always been an outspoken advocate because of where you are in part, but because of who you are in part as well for Indigenous rights. Um, maybe talk about, you know, how COVID has affected those in your riding and around your riding. Um, because I, I think, you know, down here in the GTA, we, we sometimes miss that. Well, as many uh, know, Northern Manitoba is one of the poorest regions of our country. Uh, and of course, that great irony that immense wealth in, in terms of natural resources is extracted from our part of the country, but it's it's at the expense of Indigenous communities, of workers, of the environment. Uh, and what we've seen during COVID is those inequalities and those injustices only become exacerbated. Uh, I remember it was, I believe, March 14th. I did the last press conference. Actually, it was the last press conference that took place on Parliament Hill before it was shut down and due to COVID. And and I was making a clear call for immediate federal support for First Nations in our region who were sounding the alarm that they did not have what it takes to deal with a global pandemic. Uh, They knew it. They knew it before there were cases in our province or in declared cases in our province or in their communities. They knew it because of the absolute pervasiveness of third world living conditions. Uh, And we know in in instances like these, it is women who bear the brunt of of those inequalities and those injustices. Uh, And so fast forward a year later, our region has just been rocked by COVID-19. We've had a disproportionate number of cases. In fact, in Manitoba, 30% of the population is First Nations. 70% of the cases have been amongst First Nations people, right? And this has everything to do with living conditions and everything to do with federal neglect connected to systemic racism and uh, ongoing colonialism, right? Um, You know, and what I've seen in this crisis, and, and obviously I'm in close contact with with leadership and advocates, um, elders, their families, right, is um, is is in many cases, particularly women in these communities, have done everything in their power to bring people around a collective um, agenda uh, 
right, to protect themselves with what they have. So we've seen extremely strict lockdowns, lockdowns that we in non-Indigenous communities could never imagine. We're not just talking about curfews. We're talking about people cannot leave the community to go shopping for essential goods. You know, uh, we're, we're talking about, uh, you know, people not being able to leave their homes when cases have been identified and having patrols around there. And, and, and it's been many women holding it down saying, this is all we've got to stay safe because we cannot rely on the federal government, right? It is truly a world onto its own. And it has everything to do with our, uh, you know, our, our, the state, but also our societal uh, approach towards First Nations. For, for, for many, it is out of sight, out of mind. For others, it's deeply rooted in, in, uh, in racism. And, uh, and I would say that the COVID crisis and certainly the cases, that, you know, the, the disproportionate impact uh, has to be a clear call for Canada to not just do better, but to do differently what, what it's done up to now, it is a matter of life and death uh, to, uh, to invest in housing, to invest in clean water, to invest in healthcare. And uh, you know, we need to learn from this crisis. We need to hear communities loud and clear. We need to hear indigenous women who have said, you know, we, uh, we, we cannot live like this any longer. And so this is a call that's been inf- important for me to bring forward. But I have to say, Sherry, this also connects with, with uh, you know, my broader activism. And I think our broader activism, we need, a build, we need to build a different kind of world coming out of this crisis because we've seen the way in which people are paying for, uh, for a neoliberal system that's pushing them down with their lives, right? We need to push for something different, something bold, something transformative. And let's talk about that. Talking here with Nikki Ashton, uh, MP, uh, uh, former leadership candidate for the NDP federally and uh, and good friend. Nikki, um, you've got something really exciting coming up, uh, something I'm going to be attending with bells on. Uh, you're speaking to, you know, I mean, if there was a figure, I mean, you, you think sort of Bernie Sanders and, of course, the squad in the, in the States, um, and then internationally, you think Jeremy Corbyn, and you are going to be in conversation with Jeremy Corbyn. That's so exciting. Uh, I think it will attract uh, left in this country tuning in, and not only in this country, of course. So first of all, talk about how that came about, what the organization is that supports it and yeah start there Thank you, Sherry. And I'm so glad you'll be uh, you, you're not only joining, but I know you've been promoting it as well. And, and I definitely want to encourage everybody to tune in. It's March 20th, 1 to 3 p.m. Eastern, uh, two hours, uh, an event featuring Jeremy Corbyn. There will be other activists as well uh, tuning in. We're, we're asking people to send their, their, uh, their questions. Uh, and of course, it's a fundraiser as well. As many know, uh, the way to be able to take part is by donating what you can. And, uh, and then we're going to be sending everybody the Zoom link, although, of course, we will be uh, allowing uh, folks uh, to uh, uh, to join no matter uh, no matter what if they have if they don't have the means to uh, to donate directly so please check it out please tune in it is very exciting first off it is the first Canadian based uh, event for Progressive International a nascent network of progressives from around the world left um, advocates artists politicians citizens from around the world who've said we've had enough with this uh, with the status quo we've had 
enough with neoliberalism. Uh, we've had enough of capitalist greed. We need a bold, transformative vision for our world, a world where social, environmental, and economic justice becomes a reality. And I have to tell you, it's I'm deeply inspired by this organization. It is something, uh, well, first of all, it launched three years ago at the Sanders Institute gathering, which is uh, uh, hosted by Bernie Sanders and his partner, Jane Sanders. And, um, you know, and it, it's uh, it's been an incredible network. Now, of course, uh, uh, Bernie Sanders' presidential run put things on pause. Then we had, of course, COVID, things changed everything. Uh, but uh, but it started in earnest. And, uh, and as a Canadian council member myself, I proposed to help them out and and build here in our own country. And and this event came together. Uh, And um, I'm deeply honored to be joining Jeremy Corbyn, a uh, absolute inspiration for me and I know for many in our country, a champion for human rights, a champion for peace and justice, uh, you know, a a champion for a better world for everybody, especially young people, right? There's so many young people that, that, uh, you know, that that just can't get enough of the kind of vision that Jeremy Corbyn is, is putting forward, not on like Bernie Sanders, right? So, so I'm deeply honored that he he uh, you know he's he's a key part of this event or the key part of this event, and uh, you know and and really it's a it's a conversation focused on building solidarity and uh, uh, you know building a movement coming out of this crisis that we're facing this you know crisis that we many of us share in common whether it's the rise of the far right the rise of inequality uh, or cli- the climate catastrophe we face you know we want to talk to Jeremy Corbyn and see what he thinks you know how does he say see the world going forward what can we do to build that international solidarity and uh, you know i'm very excited and i hope uh, as many people as possible will tune in uh, and you're right. And there's a phenomenal groundswell. I mean, he became um, really a movement unto himself. So I wanted to ask you what happened, because we were all hoping that he would be the prime minister um, of the UK. And then that would set a new and, you know, really interesting bar for everyone to aspire to. But that did not happen. Can you talk about that? Talk about what happened? Certainly what uh, what we saw was uh, right off the get go. I mean, you know, he, he dealt with it internally as an MP for many years, but certainly as he approached leadership and then, of course, as leader in a big way, uh, we, we saw the the absolute uh, uh, relentless effort to undermine him, uh, to demonize him, uh, to uh, to attack him. Right. And and uh, let's not kid ourselves. It was because he is left. Right. It is because he is he is daring and he has dared to challenge the most powerful in his country. Right. The United Kingdom. Right. The 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 colonizers of all colonizers. Right. And he was taking on the political and economic establishment on behalf of the people and uh, and the political and economic establishment, not just the Tory one, but but also the labor establishment uh, couldn't handle it, right? And uh, and as we know, uh, reports indicated after that that it, it's uh, people in the labor establishment uh, that uh, undermined 
Labour's campaign under Corbyn in the general election. Now we know, of course, also Brexit was uh, was a huge issue that derailed, uh, you know, much of the discussion in in Britain. And and uh, Corbyn had a had a, a a very progressive and nuanced message on that front, centering uh, the well being of working people and people on the margins. You know, and and and, uh, and but unfortunately, what what was what we saw time and time again was a demonization of Corbyn in the media amongst politicians and including from people in his own movement because he was and is left. And part of that left, I mean, some exciting, I mean, he really was left in terms of speaking about issues and even in terms of nationalization, which is a word you don't hear much anymore, but really is kind of a core socialist value. And let's use the S word, socialist value here. Um, Yeah, uh, now, you know, one of the, uh, and Brexit was an issue, no doubt. I mean, it became problematic for him. But I guess, you know, coming out of this, um, you know, what, like, how do you, and my question, which I've already submitted, is really how how do you combat those forces? Because those forces are real. I mean, these, this is a lot of money we're talking about. This is international global capitalism that you're really taking on in some way, shape or form. And uh, they see, you know, the election of a Corbyn or, you know, anybody to the left as being a slippery slope issue for them. So you've got all the money in the world, you've got more power in some respects in national governments. How do you stand up to them? The word that comes to mind over and over and over again, Sherry, is solidarity, right? And uh, and not not just as a slogan, uh, but uh, but something that 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 we have to live, uh, that we have to find ways to practice. Uh, those of us, and I, and and you've led the way in so many ways, Sherry, that uh, that are are left and have been in politics, know that that means being rooted in in our communities, uh, working hand in hand with with social movements, uh, you know, being allies and working in solidarity with those on the margins and um, and daring to challenge the status quo. Right. And, And using the S word, putting forward socialist ideas, putting forward ideas that have a the a fundamental goal of of making people's lives better right i mean that's that's what it is right and uh and and that's what uh you know what you fought for that's what people like bernie sanders have fought for that's what people like jeremy corbyn have fought for uh but um but we know that that's 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 not what what uh, those running the show want, right? Um, you know, and and uh, the 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 adage of of people before profit, right? We've seen it in this pandemic. The rich have only become richer, at the expense of of people. And in the case of many, for example, in in uh, uh, the elder care uh, homes across our country, uh, it's been at the expense of people's lives, right? And so. So we have to find ways to build that solidarity and uh, find we, we it is incumbent on us. And I would say particularly those of us who are elected uh, to to not uh, uh, ignore social movements, including the climate justice movement, including indigenous justice movements, and not to sort of pick what we find convenient in uh, in the struggle for justice, but but really to have a principled approach in what we fight for and, uh, and and respect the work that's already being done, including during this pandemic by frontline activists who are pushing for systemic change, right? And so 
I'm looking forward to to, uh, to hearing from from Jeremy Corbyn as well, you know, on those very lines. What are they doing in the UK? He's also launched an international initiative on peace and justice. You know, what is he seeing around the world? Uh, and how can we plug into that and gain inspiration from that and, and, and energize uh, ourselves and our movements around that? And I've got to say, just in the last few days, since we, of course, uh, said that we were doing this event, uh, I've seen a lot of people uh, be energized, right. And say, uh, goodness, like, you know, we need this, right. We just need even this conversation. Uh, and so to me, I really see this as the beginning of, of, of much more exciting work aimed at building that solidarity, uh, in, in, uh, in the hopes of, of pushing forward the transformative vision of this world that we need. I mean, certainly, uh, speaking here with Nikki Ashton and, uh, and, uh, celebrating, um, Women's Day, um, International Women's Day, uh, the way we should, I think, with progressive uh, women on the show, Radical Reverend, you're listening to, and of course, your host, Sherry DeNovo here. Um, so Nikki, as you were speaking, I was thinking, yeah, I mean, the response to global capitalism has to be a global movement. And so progressive is is that global movement. And that's what's so in part exciting about this, is that um countries, you know, beyond national borders now, we have to start thinking. And the other issue that makes me think of that, of course, is the other pressing issue, um, which is, you know, climate crisis. I mean, we've seen, uh, and, and, you know, we've seen again an international movement around that. um, uh, And it, again, things have not progressed on that front during COVID, sadly, either. Um, So, uh, so again, we are, you know, in this country still building pipelines for god's sake i mean we're still we're still going in the wrong direction i mean it's rare that we can say that we're more reactionary in our government especially with the liberal so-called liberal government than the united states but we are right now so so what's happening there i mean you're sitting in in, in parliament is how do the liberals answer to this basic contradiction that they say they're green and they're not what's going on there mm-hmm. Well, it's a it's a sham, right? I mean, their their public relations project to uh, what greenwash their agenda, right? Is is uh, has been proven to be uh, uh, the opposite, right? Not only are they building a pipeline, uh, we are still continuing to send billions of dollars in subsidies towards the oil and gas industry. Uh, we are uh, failing to see any movement, of course, as a result on on pushing forward a green new deal, uh, and uh, you know, and it's it's um, uh, it's it's very troubling. Right. And, and uh, you know, and I think during during COVID, there's been a lot of discussion around, you know, this the status quo cannot cannot go on like this. Um, and, uh, you know, and I think and, and, and rightly so, a lot of other struggles have 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 taken more attention, right? The absolute tragedy in our care homes, uh, the way in which frontline workers have been have been uh, exploited and and, uh, and killed uh, as a result of, of uh, neoliberal policies waged by our governments. Um, but, uh, but it's still that that struggle for climate justice is still very much ongoing. And, and, uh, and it's all connected, right? Uh, and so I would, um, you know, I, it's so it's imperative that we call the liberals out for their hypocrisy on the environment. Uh, it's imperative that we put forward 
not just uh, you know band-aid solutions, but a bold vision like the Green New Deal. And I know colleagues of mine are working on that, have been working on that. Uh, but but a vision that sort of, that says you know we can achieve social and economic justice along with environmental justice through this kind of vision. And I'm hopeful that uh, you know that the the NDP and and certainly uh, you know those of us will that care about this deeply uh, will push forward on that bold vision. Along with that, and I just, of course, want to put that as, out there is the importance of being, uh, you know, in, in solidarity with those on the front lines fighting for that bold vision, including especially Indigenous activists. You know, we, we were seeing uh, uh, Indigenous activists uh, uh, fight back against the Site C Dam in BC. We know, obviously, the Wet'suwet'en, right? That is all part of uh, the fight for environmental justice, right? Indigenous justice and, and environmental justice, which of course go hand in hand. So let's be there in solidarity on those struggles as well as, uh, as putting forward uh, and, and pushing for that, that bold Green New Deal we need. Uh, speaking here to Nikki Ashton, and we've just got a couple of minutes left, Nikki. So um, I want to make sure that we really plug this event that's coming up because it's so exciting. I mean, this is major for you too, I think, in your profile. Uh, so, so good move, um, uh, and happy to see it. Um, but uh, I think it's it, it's kind of it gives it's giving hope to the left in Canada. It's giving hope to the whole left in Canada who will tune in for sure. I hope so. So again, just tell us again what's happening Mar in March uh, and who you're talking to before we let you go. So thank you, Sherry. Uh, March 20th, uh, 1 to 3 p.m. Eastern. It's a an event hosted by Progressive International where I will be talking to Jeremy Corbyn, uh, the former uh, UK Labour leader and uh, current MP. And uh, we will also be featuring other activists as well from across our country. Uh, please tune into all of our social media platforms to get the information on how you can attend the event. We'd love to hear you in terms of questions, uh, commentary, what you'd like us to raise with Jeremy Corbyn and uh, and let's show us our support as progressives uh, for for this kind of conversation and this kind of movement. This is only the beginning with Progressive International uh, and I would say only the beginning for some very exciting internationalist and solidarity building work we can do here in our, here in our own country and I hope to see you there. Thank you so much, Nikki Ashton, and stay tuned uh, after this little break uh, and we'll be talking to a provincial woman of some Force, and that is merit style. So, all for International Women's Day. Stay tuned on the Radical Reverend Show. Welcome to the Radical Reverend Show, or I should say, welcome back to the Radical Reverend Show. It's my delight to have Merritt Stiles on the show again. Uh, of course, you know her, you should know her. She's the MPP uh, for Davenport um, and the education critic for the NDP and the, the official opposition at Queen's Park. Uh, and really done, I have to say, a superlative job at, at holding uh, the Ford government's feet to the fire on that file. Um, so we're going to talk about all things education and a few more things tossed in there, like vaccines. But anyway, we'll get to that. Uh, first and foremost, you've been there for almost three years now, Merritt, and you moved there from being a trustee. What is the experience of being at Queen's Park like? 
And you can tell the truth to my listeners. <laughs> you you know a little bit about this, Sherry. But uh, you know, it is it is um, you know, it's a really strange environment to be there with the in the in the Doug Ford era for sure. Um, we've been through some really wild times. I mean, it's hard to even imagine that what three years ago we were dealing with that attack on local elections and local democracy here in 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 Toronto. And it, we've seen, you know, so many kind of moments like that over the last few years. And now in this pandemic, um, it's it's been very strange because to be honest, um, what's really standing out for me right now is how light the government's agenda is. You know, at a time when you think there's so much work to be done, so much important work to be done, um, they, they're, they're just not putting through anything that's particularly um, important, in my opinion, uh, what they are putting through or not, certainly not the priorities of, of Ontarians. And uh, yeah, and so it's been a really interesting experience, but it's also been like a total privilege, as I know you know, right? It's a privilege to be able to stand there and to fight the fight and on behalf of a lot of people who really who really have no, who feel like they have no voice in what's happening um, in this province. So explain to me before we go, you know, do a deep dive into the education file. Um, and, and, and I preface this by saying, you know, his polls, polling has been higher. Um, so I guess we're moving in the right direction, sort of. But I mean, he's still popular despite everything. Um, and, and I, I noticed, you know, he's some very careful backroom crafting of his image, you know, Uncle Uncle Doug, Uncle Doug, you know, that's how he's coming across as, you know, the nice guy at the family gatherings, not the sharpest knife in the drawer, but, you know, he's nice and he has your best interest at heart. Um, and, and he's kind of playing that for all it's worth. But I mean, people are getting their vaccines, people are getting evicted, teachers are frightened, etc., etc. Um, how do you explain these polling numbers? Well, you know, I, I mean, I, I, I really do think like polling is a is an art. <laughs> it is not a science. And, you know, it depends on who's doing the polling a lot of the time. So we can all take that into consideration. But, you know, I, I also think that in, in really wild times like this, really, un, you know, unforeseen unprecedented times. I mean, I guess we've we've all experienced some, you know, we've gone through times like this, but not for several generations. Uh, and I think for a lot of people, you know, they they are kind of looking to government generally for guidance. And so um, any, and you can see it in the polling results across the country, right? He's not the only premier who's got high numbers. Um, but I, I have to say, it doesn't really reflect my experience on the ground, right? With like talking to people every day. I, I feel like people are are generally really afraid. Uh, they're really disappointed. Um, and, and, you know, for those of us, like in my case, I'm not, I don't have a family member who's in long-term care. Nobody in my immediate family has been sick. Uh, I haven't been evicted from my home. I, I guess, you know, it, it, it can seem a little surreal, but those people who have been directly impacted, it is, it has been a devastating period. And this government, I think, I really do feel in the next few months in particular, will have, will come to account, you know, will be held accountable. Uh, for what's what's taken place, and and I think that's going to shift, and it's it's becoming increasingly difficult for for the premier to to play this aw shucks guy, uh, and you know talk about Timmy's uh, egg sandwiches uh, and get away with it. And I think the media also have become a fair a fair amount more cynical over the last few months. 
Yeah, you, you can kind of notice that certainly among some of them more than others of them. But I mean, it was it's a rare day when the Toronto Sun takes him to task for long term care. I mean, wow, uh, that's something. Um, talking about that, uh, my last show, um, we had Dr. Vivian, as I call her on, she's been on a couple of times talking about the disaster that is long-term care that that we have to remind folk too is not I mean it's you know the chickens have come home to roost in this instance but but long-term care has been a mess for decades um and we were screaming about it back when I was first elected in 2006 I mean you know the 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 ratio of the hours that, that residents were getting in terms of care was already abysmal and this was an accident waiting to happen and it happened um tragically so uh, and there's been no response, really. Um, I, I can't imagine that anybody that has a relative in long-term care is happy with this government's handling of it. Although, you know, again, some seem to say they are. I don't know who they are. Um, but certainly the death rate is astounding and tragic, right? Yeah, and I, I think, you know, it, for a lot of people that I talk to out there who have family in, in long-term care facilities, it's also like, sometimes it gets a bit mixed up, right? In like the the staff who've been so amazing in the home that their their loved one is in, or, um, you know, that kind of care that they're receiving, people who've just gone above and beyond. And I think that for a lot of people, they're just thankful for that too. But I think that increasingly as we, and I think, you know, with the commission that they have this long-term care commission, which I know Dr. Viv talks about a lot is, you know, as they start to shine light in those kind of dark corners of what, how this government handled this crisis, I, I think it's going to become increasingly clear that like, as you said, it, it was, it's both a dereliction right, of duty now to those people in care, but it, it wasn't just made overnight. This was didn't happen overnight. This has been happening for decades. And it's the stuff that we've been shouting about for, for many years. And it's that deregulation of the industry. It's that introduction of profit um, over patient care into, into care and long-term care. And, you know, I think we're, I think we're just starting to see the tip of that uh, because this, you know, you don't lose 8,000 8, people you know, just overall and not, and not, and not have uh, some kind of reckoning around that. And, and I think when we look back on this, look, we, we've got to find something good to come out of this terrible tragedy. And if anything can come out of this, I really hope it's, it's that we, we reform long-term care, um, that we, we take those for-profit corporations out of long-term care, and we start to treat those workers with the respect and frankly, the compensation and rights that they deserve. Absolutely. Well, let's let's do um, a bit of a, a wander through your portfolio now, which is education. Um, I, I've been hearing from teachers who are DMing me on Twitter and talking about just how genuinely frightened they are in their schools. I mean, we all know that class sizes are not what they should be. They should be 15 and under. They are not in many, many instances. And kids are close together. Kids are kids. They take off their masks. They don't put them on properly. They, you know, get together. Um, they eat lunch without masks on. Teachers are eating in their cars. I mean, it's a schmozzles, right? And it's and it's a dangerous one. Um and we know now with asymptomatic testing, such as it is, that it's indicative of a, a much broader problem. Um, and when Lecce stood up today to talk, it wasn't about that. It was about, as I said, now he's now it's going to make uh, early childhood education even worse. But uh, we won't go there right now. Um, what I mean, what do you do with that? 
as the critic standing across from all of that? Yeah, it's, you know, what I think about where we were at this time last year, you know, when, when, when say in March, when things really started to shut down and kids were sent home. And I think um, of what we, what we were prioritizing at that time, even then, even in that, in the spring, when we started to look at what was happening around the world and what we, what we were learning about COVID-19, it was pretty clear that there were some really, you know, important factors to consider. And one was distance. And, and, and I gotta say too, the other thing that I found really preoccupying in that first few months was just that, that fear of the, the, the impact on mental health and isolation on people, which, you know, here we are a year in and it's kind of like, of course that had a huge impact, but at the time I was really, really afraid of that. I still am. But, um, and so, you know, thinking of ways that we could make schools work, um, if that was possible to keep schools open and what that would mean in terms of investment and action on the part of the government. And they have so dismally failed. Like they, they present this, uh, Lecce stands up there and, you know, pats himself on the back. And so does Doug Ford, call themselves all-stars, but they have really dramatically failed. And they, and the worst thing about it is they knew what needed to be done. They knew what needed to be done. They still know what needs to be done. And to your point, like it really is about making sure that those kids have space between them. It's pretty simple. You can't have 27 kids in a, in a classroom and, and have the distance that you need between them. Um, You can't have them taking their masks off and eating in the same room. And, and then the other piece of it, which you mentioned, which I think is really critical is like, we tend to forget maybe as parents, I don't know, do we forget this, that, that there are other, there are adults in schools, <laughs> those teachers and those custodians and all the other education workers are adults. Some of them are, you know, ha, are, have their health already compromised and they're putting themselves at risk. And so it's, it's about protecting the kids, but it's also protecting those adults and then the families at home. Yeah, and we should mention the ventilation issue too, oh. which has not been addressed. Not to mention the fact that there, where is the school nurse? You know, <laughs> um, yeah. and, uh, we we saw today Thunder Bay is closing some of its schools. There's outbreaks of the variant even in Toronto schools and TDSB, um, and uh, and and you know, I just predict. Um, I hope I'm wrong that more and more will revert to online at this rate um, as the numbers go up, which is sad and demoralizing. Um, and, and it brings us to another issue, which, and I'm just wondering where, it, I, I know that paid sick days got voted against by Ford's government, um, but then I saw something indicating it might still be alive somehow. Where, where is that bill? So, so yeah, Peggy Sattler had this bill, uh, MPP from London West had that bill, um, which is which is um, stay home if you're sick bill it's called and it actually we we brought forward a couple motions in the last few weeks to try to get them to just pass it like just pass it right then and there but um, in fact they wouldn't so then on Thursday we debated it in the legislature and now it's going to be voted on on Monday after question period uh, but all indications are that the government doesn't intend to support it uh, but we're so we're really pushing hard in these last few days to see if we can get people to call those conservative MPPs email them. Uh, put the pressure on because there's overwhelming support for paid sick days, right? I mean, it's not just the NDP; it's it's mayors and city councils, and it's it's all the medical officers of health, all the public health units are calling for this. This is necessary if we're going to fight COVID. And you know, we of course, like I, I certainly believe it's necessary 
you know, forever and for always. Uh, but in this particular moment, it's become really clear that we can't, we're not going to be able to fight COVID unless we can make sure that people feel safe uh, and secure staying home and are not going to lose um, that all important paycheck that they need to feed their families. Uh, and uh, for sick days, of course, uh, Doug is saying, uh, yeah, but we've, we've already got them. Look at the federal program. That's his go-to. Um, but again, you have to apply. It's tricky. It doesn't cover it, blah, blah, blah. I mean, we should all by now, if you don't, please do some research. Know all of the ins and outs of that issue. Um, getting back to the school system, uh, this really seems behind and above all of this kind of attack on public schooling generally. Um, do you get that sense from Lecce? I mean, this it seems like part of a broader program. And this is a private school boy himself, um, who's, by the way, <laughs> alma mater high school, had their two weeks off at March break. Um, but I mean, is, is this what's really behind this? You know, it's educational assistant was homeschooled. Um, is, you know, is this really a government that's pro-public education at all? You know, I, I really do believe that ever since this government was elected, that's been on their agenda to to introduce more, more private education. Or really, I think what they want to do is eventually, you know, publicly fund private education. And so that we've seen how that works. We've seen that how that works in other jurisdictions in the U.S. and and why they want to move to, you know, some kind of a charter or voucher school system. It's in some of the early documents that this government, um, uh, some of the early reports that Ernst and Young put together for them. Uh, so we know that's where they're headed. And so things like this that undermine confidence in public education. Uh, really feed into their their big plan. And I, I, I always think when I say that, I must sound like such a conspiracy theorist, but I, I really, really believe it. I, I, I really do. And I, I mean, the proof is in the pudding. They, they have the reports. We know what their interest is in. And you're absolutely right. You know, this isn't a government that even really pretends too much to be, to, to be wedded to public education. But, you know, things like the introduction of online learning, when, you know, it was only a year ago that they were trying to force all our kids to have four online classes. And, and to this day, the minister stands up and says in the legislature, oh, you know, good thing we were moving in that direction. Hey, we have such a great system. And, and, and we're saying, look, if anything, this has shown why that doesn't work. How many kids fall through the cracks? How few kids that works for? And by the way, also how hard that is for education workers, for teachers. So um I hope that, in fact, maybe this will have undermined some of their arguments. But, you know, I what I'm worried about, Cherry, I bet you are, too, is like where this government heads post-pandemic, because we know that governments like this and the liberals in Ottawa, they're going to be heading towards some kind of austerity program. It's going to be cuts. And and so that's where I start to worry, too, at a time when we probably need to see more resources than ever pumped into our education system. Is, is that what they're going to be doing? Or are they going to be looking to divert funds to allow for more kind of private involvement, you know, private tutoring, private programs? Yeah, um, which kind of cycles back to the, the polling, because I'm sure with a, a, just over a year left um, of this session, that he's not going to be doing it until <laughs> until after the next election. So, so keep your eyes wide open out there uh, because, yeah, if the goodies come before the election, the austerity will absolutely guaranteed come after whatever they say. Um, I want to go back to the teacher situation too. Uh, 
you know, again, if, if hearing from teachers and especially, for example, substitute teachers who are moving still from school to school, still of the, still don't have, you know, a paid sick days or even bus drivers who, again, are in extremely unhealthy situations. We had a case this week where, you know, an entire bus, you know, was uh, there's somebody on the bus and then other people had to be tested and led to a general quarantine um, and I and teachers are asking me this, so I'm going to ask you this: If there ever was a time for a teacher strike, it seems to some of us that now's the time. Um, is that possible, or is there a reason that that that's not even being talked about, or you know, what's the mood? Well, you know, I mean, I I'm like obviously not inside the unions um, and their and their leadership, but I, I've talked to like as as you, I mean, you're really hearing from so many education workers because you've really you know become this great at like important advocate and voice I think for so many education workers who are by the way also really afraid to speak out right like there's a chill there's no question and I think that's you know and I have to say like the unions have been I think really great at putting pushing the government. And using lots of other tools to really push the government on uh, on health and safety. Um, but I mean, one of the problems that I think exists right in this moment is 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 there's the government is dying for an opportunity to to focus attention on unions and to drive that anti-union sentiment that's out there. And I I know I feel that too, and I feel that I'm sensitive to that because I I really believe that our education workers have put everything on the line in this moment. I mean, they have done an extraordinary job. I don't even like to talk about things like the disruption to learning or the gap in learning because I know how hard those teachers have worked. But the truth is that this is this has put many of them at risk. It's been an extremely difficult time. Um, and I mean, you know, yes, absolutely. I mean, what are the tools that working people have? They have the ability to withhold their labor. Uh, so I, I mean, I don't pretend to know if that's something that's ever discussed, but I do know as well that a lot of the teachers I talk to, you know, they really, really want to be present as much as possible for the students in this really tough time. And, uh, and so I, I think that probably plays into some of the decision making as well. So, so looking ahead, it, it, there's a year left of the agenda, there's months left even of this session. Um, you know, what, what do you see? I mean, obviously, we don't have sick days. Obviously, long-term care is a mess. Obviously, the schools are, are becoming increasingly dangerous. Um, there's so many fronts to fight on. Um, is there, what are you feeling and hearing from people is the main, main mm -hmm. issue that people are focused on right now? And, and then the official opposition might focus on it too. What is that? And I, I think that, you know, in the last few weeks, you've seen us put forward like a whole lot of motions that I think we consider to be the kind of current actions that need to be taken right now. And I think that um, the big ones for a lot of people are, is a ban on evictions. I mean, when it comes down to it, it's like basic. <laughs> we, we can't have people losing their homes in this moment. We can't have more people pushed out into the streets. We already have a crisis among um, folks in our communities who are without housing, without adequate housing, without affordable housing. I think that's like one of the big, big issues. Um, and, and I think too, you know, just, just I think that, um, that the paid sick days issue, you know, those protection for the protection for workers, for working people, you know, actually I have to say, Sherry, like it really, it's interesting. And I'm sure you find this all the time that you look back and you think like, what have, what is the opposition? What is the NDP been calling for, for so many years? investment in public health, 
investment in those protections, you know, people over profit, right? Um, I feel like that's where a lot of people are are finding themselves in this moment. I mean, and then the other piece of it, I think for sure that I've been thinking a lot about, and I don't know if I could say that it's on everybody, the front for everybody, but I, I really believe that there's going to be this, this call for somebody to talk about how this generation is impacted and how we're going to deal with that. So how are young people who've had their learning? And I, again, I hesitate to say it, but, you know, certainly disrupted, um, who've had their opportunities disrupted, who are going to face possibly the, the, the impact of whatever's coming. You know, if a government's elected that, you know, makes cuts, big, big cuts, uh, they're the ones that are going to suffer a lot. Um, and for gener and for for many decades, and I think we need to think about those issues. I hope, I really do hope that that becomes part of the conversation we have heading into the next election. I mean, certainly the anxiety and depression levels are oh. really rising among young people. Just the pressure they're under. I mean, it what a bleak outlook they they must have. And at a time of your uh, of your life when you're intensely social, the young people who for whom home is not a safe place. You know, that that really, I think, uh, I mean, I've talked to lots of folks in, in my community. There was a wonderful um, youth shelter called Horizons for Youth. They do great work. I mean, they've had to reduce the number of young people they can house. And they are getting desperate calls every day from young people who just are not in a safe place and need to be out and can't. And the same applies to a lot of, you know, a lot of other people, women in particular, who are, who are you know, particularly kind of trapped in this moment. And, uh, and I think that's, Again, something that, you know, there are these, I feel so privileged to be just worried about, you know, I can't get my hair cut, you know, or I, I really do. And I, and I feel like there's, there's just going to be, um, and I'm glad to hear you're going to be talking about that because I agree. I think for young people, this has a really um, significant and pretty devastating impact over the last year. So let's spend the last moments that we have talking about uh, what seems to be rising in terms of issues. And that's the uh, availability and the delivery of vaccines in this province. Um, I mean, that has been, I would say, a disaster in its rollout. Um, we have a general, retired general, which is bizarre in and of itself, I think. Why would a retired general be handling this um, at $20,000 a month? Um, and somehow it's going to take them weeks still to get a portal up so that people can book an appointment. Meanwhile, we're seeing Ottawa, York, Guelph already booking through their public health units, uh, you know, appointments. How does that happen? And so, it, again, it's all very bizarre. Um, and uh, certainly we're just not seeing the rollout the way that it should be happening. Uh, everybody knows this because anybody who's talked to their doctor or their public health unit will know that they say the same thing. We have no idea what's going on. Nobody's told us anything. So everybody's kind of in the dark waiting for something to happen. Um, what, I mean, why, why? Has anybody offered any kind of reasonable explanation for this? Well, certainly not from the government. Certainly not from Doug Ford or Christine Elliott. I mean, that, that in fact, all we hear is this ridiculous, they give themselves like accolades, right? <laughs> you know, they're giving themselves standing ovations over what I just can't, I think is like, is just a complete and utter disaster. And I think most Ontarians do too. There's no question. And, and I think it's, 
you know, when he measures himself against other provinces, it's like, well, well, we're not really doing particularly well anywhere in Canada. That is true. And, and, uh, but we are, we are absolutely failing here in Ontario. And the fact that there is no, that everything seems to be like an afterthought. I think that's, what's really striking me. And is, is the fact that the government seems to have been so deeply unprepared, have failed at so many levels. Uh, certainly, surely we would have had this ready to go. Uh, as soon as the vaccines arrive, what, where is the system? Where are the portals? And and I guess the other piece to me is that inequity or that inconsistency between public health units. Like, do we have a provincial system? Do we have a provincial healthcare system that's ready to deliver vaccines? No, we don't. We don't appear to. And and that's extraordinary. You know, I have I have relatives. Most of my family actually live in the United States, and uh, my parents are you know close to eighty now and uh, in Ottawa, and they can't imagine, they don't have no idea when they're gonna get a vaccine, really, even to this day, right? There's no way for them to sign up for anything. But, but their younger siblings in the US are vaccinated, fully vaccinated in the United States, which has been such a disaster. So it, again, you know, it also speaks to our capacity as a country to, to manufacture you know, and and I, I think kudos to the federal NDP for and, and Peter Julian in particular and others for you know pushing really hard uh, for um, national pharmacare, but also for investment in um, a, a national federal uh, drug manufacturing program, which was turfed so many years ago. Yes, by the conservatives at that time, and sadly could have been producing vaccines from the get-go just about. Um, yeah, I mean, there's there's so much that's wrong with that, and we'll, we'll stay tuned because uh, when I talked to uh, Toronto Public Health, they said, we'll phone back every day, we might know something tomorrow, and I'm thinking... Wow, what a way to run a health system, you know, um, where from day to day, I mean, it, it feels like they're just watching the news like we are, uh, and there's no inside track that really anybody has. So um, needless to say, what happens in that vacuum is that people go to other countries, which is happening, we've seen the news, or or they jump the queue because they know somebody who knows somebody. Um, I mean, so all of that is happening, which just makes people live it. And, and the sad reality is that it's there's nothing funny about it. I mean, seniors are dying, and we know that seniors are dying um, in long-term care for sure. But also, you know, there are those 80-year-olds, many of them. I have many in my congregation who live at home. They're on mm -hmm. their own. Um, so how are we going to find them? Uh, it's going to be difficult, if not impossible, for them to get down to a hospital or the convention center. So who who is going to vaccinate them, if not their GPs? Um, and then who's going to get between the GP? Like, Again, all of these questions. Logistics, right? How do you make it accessible? And those are the questions that you would have hoped would have been addressed somehow. And it seems like all of these decisions have been downloaded into onto hospitals, onto public health units, onto um, community health centers that are already just have have no capacity. So, you know, I mean, I'm hearing from from like my colleague Dolly Begum was telling me, you know, she's met with or, or um, and Rima Burns McGowan meeting with the folks at Michael Garin Hospital uh, and they've got a great plan in place. But I, I I mean, that is that's great, but where is the rest of the plan? Who else is going to be offering it up and how is it going to be accessible? Yeah. And again, the fact that we can see it happening in different places in the province is really 
outrageous. <laughs> um, it's like everybody on their own for, for their own. Um, speaking, of course, to Merritt Styles here, and I should have said that earlier, you're listening to the Radical Reverend Show, but you know that. Uh, and you're either listening to it on the radio. Thank you, CIUT 89.5 FM. You are the only alternative radio station left in Toronto. Keep it up, keep it up. Uh, or you're listening on podcast, uh, iTunes, SoundCloud, all the rest of it. Uh, and again, just a reminder to you, all of you, that I love to hear from you and I always respond. So send me your comments, questions, suggestions, and I will pass them on or answer them as best as I can. Um, Merritt, closing words. Um, uh, what do you hope happens? You've got a year left there. Um, hopefully, I mean, one way or the other, presumably we'll all get vaccinated at some point, we hope. Um, sooner or later, we hope um, the pandemic will, you know, even if we hit this third wave that could have been prevented, um, it will also, you know, lessen and lessen in terms of the impact on our lives. Um, what do you see, you know, what do you see when that happens and we start to kind of come out of our homes, you know, and, and go back into our workplaces and, um, yeah, what do you see the big issues being then? Well, I, I think what I hope, what I hope I see is um, communities that have, that have radically changed the way we see, you know, why we need to come together and work together to work, to support those who are particularly the most vulnerable. Uh, that, I, that I hope that it's really changed the way people see so many of those workers in our, in our, in our city, in our province, who, who are we now call essential, who we call frontline heroes, but who frankly, you know, we have undervalued and underpaid and not treated well for so long. And I really hope this, this could be, I'm hoping this is transformative. And I hope we don't just, you know, sit back and listen to what um, folks like Doug Ford and a lot of the, the big Bay Street guys say about, you know, how we're going to, we're going to have to make cuts and we're going to have to live within our means. And I hope we know, and we see that we actually are able to do great things that we, we are capable of having, of doing amazing things because I mean, despite all of my criticism, many criticisms of, of all levels of government, I do think this, this has shown us that yes, guess what? When they tell you that it's not possible to have a national pharmacare plan, they're lying to you because actually it's all possible. It's really a matter of political will. And so I'm hoping that people, you know, come out of this looking for something more and better. Uh, and and I, I really, really do hope that happens. And, and but I, I think what we're going to find when people come out is that the, the gap between folks has grown immensely. And so the struggle to organize around that is gonna be really important and really profound. Thank you. Thank you, Merritt. Thanks for what you're doing. Keep on doing it. We're behind you. Until next time on the Radical Reverend Show.